Father, as we come to your word, I pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Lord, I, I pray that we would not only see wonderful things in your word, but Lord, that you would take your word and cause us to see the world around us rightly because of your word. Uh, Lord, shape our thinking, shape our affections, shape our desires, shape our perspective through your word. Lord, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit. Lord, I confess I'm weak. I confess that all I can do is of temporal good. But Lord, you can do that which is of eternal good, that which is lasting. And so, Lord, I pray that you would work, that you would give grace, uh, that you would be honored, and, uh, Lord, that we would meet with you in your word now. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we get into Revelation today, I want to remind you of a couple of things about Revelation uh, and first is uh, just to, rem- to remind you that Revelation, the, the information in Revelation, is not presented in a, a strict chronological order. Uh, last week, we looked at a vision of the completion of God's wrath, but this week, we're beginning a section that spans several chapters about God's final judgment. And so don't be thrown off by that, that we saw the end of God's judgment last week, but we're looking more at God's judgment this week. In Revelation 17, and, uh, and again, the section that follows, John is basically rewinding and zooming in to show us uh, a vision that he received about some particular details of God's judgment. And uh, if you've been walking with us through Revelation, you know this isn't the first time this has happened. Throughout this book, we've already seen multiple visions of the end of this age, the return of Christ, the final judgment. Uh, We've seen that several times, and so um, that actually leads me to the second thing I want us to, uh, or I want to remind you of today, and that is, Revelation is repetitive. The visions that John received cover the same events over and over from different perspectives, And John emphasizes different aspects of the same themes over and over. And so we're going to be talking about uh, some themes today that we've uh, talked about already before. Uh, But understand that God uh, breathed out a repetitive book on purpose. He wants us to hear these truths multiple times. With that in mind, uh, let's read Revelation 17. That is going to make sense in just a second, by the way. That was not, that was not uh, uh, Bailey necessary. He's not trolling me right now. That's actually my sermon title. But let's all stand together, if you're able, uh, and uh, read Revelation 17, and uh, you will understand what that means, all right? Revelation 17, the Holy Spirit says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman 
sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other one has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast, will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. the very first word of the book of Revelation is the word revelation. And that's because Jesus wants to reveal something to us in this book. He wants us to see the truth. Jesus reveals a lot to us in the book of Revelation. He reveals God's plan for history. He reveals what we can expect in the future. But Jesus also reveals to us the unseen spiritual forces behind life as we see it. In Revelation, Jesus pulls back the curtain and he shows us what is really going on in the world. He shows us how he sees things. And we need this because often we do not see the world from God's perspective. On our own, we see the world as innocent, when it's actually dangerous. On our own, we see the world as permanent, when it's actually fleeting. 
On our own, we see the world as self-determining when actually it's under the sovereign will of God. The main thing I want us to hear from Revelation 17 today is this. See the world through God's eyes. See the world through God's eyes. Where you think you see attractive beauty, may you see deadly seduction. Where you think you see impressive power, may you see fleeting hostility. May we see the world through God's eyes. Uh, Well, to the end that we might see the world through God's eyes, Revelation 17 gives us basically two warnings throughout this chapter. And the first one is this. Don't be deceived by the world's seductive beauty. Don't be deceived by the world's seductive beauty. Last week in chapters 15 and 16, John saw seven angels who had seven bowls full of the wrath of God. And chapter 17 begins with one of those seven angels coming to John to show John the judgment of the great prostitute. And and that's what chapters 17 and 18 and the first part of 19 are about. And we're going to look at that over the next couple weeks. Um, But this character, the great prostitute, joins a, a whole cast of evil characters that we've seen in Revelation Just think we've seen the dragon, who is Satan, we've seen the beast, we've seen the false prophet, and as they're portrayed in Revelation, those three in particular form a sort of unholy trinity, each one uh, being an evil parody of one of the members of the trinity. The dragon is an evil imitation of God the Father, the beast is an evil imitation of God the Son, Jesus Christ. And the false prophet is an evil imitation of God, the Holy Spirit. Well, this character called the prostitute uh, also has a holy counterpart. She's described in Revelation 19, 7 and 8 as the bride who has made herself ready. The bride is clothed in fine linen, bright and pure. And just like one of the seven angels with the seven bowls here says, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. We're going to see in Revelation 29, John sees this. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So in Revelation, John puts these two women before us as a, uh, as a contrast. From the outset, we need to realize that John means to put a choice before us as his readers. Which woman do you want to stand with? The prostitute or the bride? Do you want to be a citizen of the kingdom of this world or a citizen of the kingdom of God and his Christ? Here in this passage, the angel says that the kings of the earth... And those who dwell on the earth, that is, the leaders of the world and the citizens of the world, they've all committed sexual immorality with this prostitute. Now, uh, one thing that uh, is common throughout Scripture and, and is the case here is sexual immorality is a metaphor for spiritual 
faithlessness, uh, spiritual idolatry, uh, sexual immorality with the great prostitute is being unfaithful to the one true God. It, it's pursuing lesser lovers. And what this picture shows us is everyone in the world is guilty of this. Everyone in the world is intoxicated by this prostitute. What we see in this picture is that the prostitute is attractive. She's wearing beautiful clothes. She's a picture of luxury. She's holding a golden cup that makes you thirsty just looking at it. You, you want to drink with her, but her cup is full of abominations and impurities. Who is this prostitute? John tells us in verse 5, on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Uh, now, this can't be the, the literal Babylon. The actual Babylonian empire had fallen centuries before this. Babylon, uh, throughout Scripture and here, is a symbolic name representing a, a principle that goes beyond any one literal nation. Uh, it represents humanity uh, seeking its own glory and not the glory of God. Babylon manifested itself in John's day as Rome, which is referred to as the great city in verse 18. And Babylon is still alive and well in our day. Babylon represents worldly pleasures. Babylon represents the economy of the kingdom of the world. She is a source of entertainment. She's a source of wealth. She's a source of self-gratification. And Babylon is opposed to God and the people of God. John says in verse 6, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. As attractive as she is, Babylon, sleeping with Babylon, is a death wish for Christians. Now, remember, John is writing this to churches, many of whom were struggling with worldliness. They were surrounded by earth dwellers, intoxicated by the sexual immorality of the prostitute. And uh, these earth dwellers around these churches were giving into idolatry and immorality as a normal part of their life and culture. And the churches that John was writing to, the saints within these churches, were going along with the people around them. And they were going along with the immorality. They participated in the idolatry. This is why John is writing this. He wants to wake them up to see this. You, you are in bed with a prostitute when you go and live a normal worldly life. Because we need to realize that apart from God's revelation and his, uh, his revealing to us the nature of the, the world around us, when someone is compromising, they don't realize they're compromising. For these Christians in Asia Minor in the first century, they were just living normal lives like the rest of the world. They were going with the flow. They blended in. Uh, there was no friction with them and the rest of the world. And so this picture of a prostitute is, again, meant to wake them up 
to get them to see what's really going on beneath the surface of their ordinary lives. And likewise, we need to see how the prostitute Babylon is at work to seduce us. Worldliness is deceptive. It doesn't come right out and show you its evil or destructive nature. It's deceptive. And so if you want to find worldliness, don't just look at the things that everyone in the world says are bad. Beware of the things that everyone in the world says are normal. The pleasures of this world, the riches of this world, the values of this world. Oh, here's how you can be happy. Here's how you can be successful. Here's how you can be fulfilled. What Jesus wants us to see is that finding our life in anyone but him is spiritual adultery. James 4.4 4 says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? To love the world is to hate God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So ask yourself, how am I giving in to the seduction of the world's beauty? In what ways am I compromising my integrity to fit in with the world around me? In what ways am I choosing earthly success, earthly prosperity, instead of remaining faithful to the bridegroom, Jesus Christ? Instead of finding our identity and being a citizen of this world and going with the flow of this world, we need to find our identity as Christians, as those who belong to the bride of Christ. Jesus wants to rescue us from an affair with the world. Paul says in Ephesians 5 that Jesus gave up his life for his bride, the church, that he might sanctify her and present the church to himself in splendor. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus can forgive us of the ways that we compromise with the world. However much we've defiled ourselves with the impurities of the prostitute, Jesus can purify us. But there's more than just that. The gospel is not just that Jesus can save us from the consequences of spiritual adultery. The gospel is that Jesus can save us from spiritual adultery itself. However you have compromised with the world, the grace of Jesus is powerful enough not only to forgive you, but to change you. To bring you to see that the beauty of Christ outshines the greatest pleasure that this world has offer. So don't be deceived by the world's seductive beauty. Second warning, don't be impressed by the world's fleeting power. Don't be impressed by the world's fleeting power. So in the first part of Revelation 17, John sees Symbols in the second part of Revelation 17, this angel interprets the symbols, uh, and in particular, uh, the symbol of the beast. We saw back in chapter 13 how the beast represents how Satan works and exercises his power through 
human kingdoms. And throughout this chapter, we get some additional details. Uh, For instance, look at verse 8. The angel says, The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. Now, that type of phrasing might ring a bell for you because it's something that is very similar to what has been said about God multiple times throughout Revelation. So take, for example, Revelation eleven seventeen. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Uh, we've seen uh, in, in another form who, who is and who was and who is coming or who is to come as a description of God. But unlike God, who is and who was and who will reign forever, the beast was and is not and is going to rise, but is going to rise to go to destruction. And again, we have this contrast. We have God who is eternal and unchanging and invincible. And then on the other hand, the beast is powerful, but it ebbs and flows and its destruction is inevitable. So like in that last section, from the outset of this section, we need to realize John is setting up a contrast to cause us to make a choice. Will you stand with the divine power of the Lamb or will you fall for the cheap imitation that is the beast? Notice in verse 8 that those who are impressed by the beast are the dwellers on earth, which is a term throughout Revelation used for unbelievers, those who have not trusted in Christ, are not saved by the blood of Christ. They are described here in this verse as those whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. As we see in the churches that Revelation was written to, it is a great temptation for Christians to be impressed by worldly power just like the rest of the world. But we must remember that this is not who we are as Christians. We are not citizens of this world. There is a kingdom that is greater than the nations and the powers of this world. And when we truly understand the authority of Christ and his superiority, we will not join with the dwellers on earth as they marvel at the beast. We will not be drawn to the beast's power nor will we be fearful of the beast's power because we stand with the Lord of lords and the King of kings. The angel explains in verse 9 that the beast's seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Now, the city of Rome was built on seven hills. And then again, I mentioned the verse 18, uh, the woman is called the great city. And you put the picture together, and the first readers of Revelation would have almost certainly thought of Rome when they heard about the description of the beast. But these seven heads are also seven kings. Satan did not only work through Rome in the first century. Satan does not limit himself to working through just one human kingdom. Satan exercises his power through many kingdoms. Uh, That's why also there's this reference to Babylon. Satan was at work through that kingdom, and King Nebuchadnezzar, he was at work through Rome and that kingdom, and he's still at work today in human kingdoms. It's likely that the 
seven kings referred to here is the, the totality of Satan's work through the kingdoms of the world. We've seen in Revelation how the number seven is symbolic of completion. And, and this sheds some light on what John says in verse 10, uh, the angel speaking. Uh, they are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. If the seven kings is a symbol for all of Satan's work through the kingdoms of the world, and five have already fallen, well then we're getting close to the end. We're not all the way there. One has yet to come, but he's only going to remain for a little while. That's not totally clear what it means that the beast is an eighth uh, that belongs to the seven. But what is crystal clear is that the beast's end is destruction. The angel also explains in verse 12 that the beast's ten horns are ten kings. So here's a, here's a further picture of how Satan exercises his power through multiple kings, multiple kingdoms. But again, we see that this power will only be for a short amount of time. One hour, the angel says. And notice we see that God is sovereign over even this because they are to receive authority. Well, who is in the heavens? Who gives to the kings of men the kingdoms of this world? God. God is the one who gives that power. So even as we see these different earthly powers and how Satan works at the, uh, among them, they're receiving their authority ultimately from the God who rules from heaven. Ultimately, all of these numbers, all of these symbols are not meant to lead us to endless decoding. Ultimately, all these details show us that God has a sovereign, detailed plan, and nothing is happening apart from his providence. Kingdoms rise and fall. Powerful figures come and go. And from an earthly perspective, the world feels unstable. Who, who's going to be the superpower that comes out on top? Uh, what nation is going to dominate next? What is going to be the outcome of this war? From an earthly perspective, things seem uncertain. But what these symbols show us is that every twist and turn of history is part of God's sovereign plan. Every leader, every nation, they're all in God's hand. We get a, another glimpse of the final battle in verses 13 and 14 in Revelation 16. Last week we saw a picture of the final battle. And in that chapter, the scene was of the unholy trinity, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, assembling the kings of the earth for war. Well, that same battle is in view here in Revelation 17 as the kings of the earth give their power and authority to the beast, and then they make war on the lamb. Just imagine all the powerful nations of the world, not fighting each other, but actually combining forces. Who could stand against such an alliance of world powers? From a human perspective, it seems powerful. From a human perspective, it would cause marveling and awe. From a human perspective, it would cause fear for those on the wrong side of all powers together. 
But when God sees that, you know what he does? He laughs. Psalm 2, 1 through 6 says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, the Lamb, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God laughs at the powers of the world combined. He laughs because the final battle will end with Jesus, God's anointed, conquering all the kings of the earth and all the forces of evil at work among them and within them. John says in verse 14 of Revelation 17, they will make war on the Lamb and the Lamb will conquer them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. This is how the story ends for Satan and this is how the story ends the kings of the earth and the seemingly impressive human power and so again this text leads us to ask the question who will you stand with will you stand with the kings of the earth or will you stand with the lord of lords and the king of kings the angel gives a powerful statement here in verse 14 about those who do stand with the lamb Notice in this description, uh, he refers to the saints as those who are called and chosen and faithful. You know, the Bible has no problem combining divine sovereignty and human responsibility. The Bible has no problem reconciling the truth that God is in control and man is responsible for his decisions. Notice, those who are with the Lamb are called, or are, are referred to as called and chosen. God calls believers to come to Jesus. And everyone who is called comes to him and is saved. God chooses his people before the foundation of the world, right? Their, their names are written in the book of life before the foundation of the world, this chapter shows us. Yet, in the same breath, those who are with the Lamb are those who are faithful. True Christians choose to place faith in Jesus for forgiveness and eternal life. And not only that, true Christians persevere in their faithfulness to Christ. True Christians are faithful in following Jesus' footsteps. Uh, so again, there's, there's no conflict here between God being in control and man having choice. And ultimately what we see here about those who follow the Lamb is that those who are faithful to Jesus can be assured, though the nations rage, if we stand with Jesus, we will be on the winning side. Well, the story takes an interesting turn at the end of this chapter. The ten horns, the ten kings, and the beast who are going to war against the Lamb, uh, before the Lamb conquers them, there, there's this scene where the ten kings and all who follow them, they, they turn on the prostitute. 
Up to this point, the prostitute and the beast and all the evil forces have seemingly worked together. But the angel says in verse 16, the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate, naked, and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. And what we just need to see in this is that the world and its power, it might seem impressive, ultimately it is self-destructive. The evil abuses of power and the seductions of sensuality and all the rest, it, it can't survive. It, it's crushed under its own weight. But even this self-destruction is under the sovereignty of God. Verse 17 says, The beast and the kings will devour the prostitute, for God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose of being of one mind and handing over the royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. God is the one in control of the future implosion of the world and everything in it. God is the one who is in control of the implosion of the kings of the world and the, the prostitute and, and everything that the world tries to treat as permanent today. In fact, part of God's judgment of the world will be in the form of the world's own self-destruction. And we're going to look more at the fall of Babylon next week in, in Revelation 18. But for now, in light of God's sovereignty over the kingdoms and powers of this world, I want us to consider one last question. We've been asking, who will you stand with? But we need to ask more than just that. We also need to ask, how do you view the world? How do I see the world and what's going on around me in the world? Do I view the world as kings and kingdoms vying for power and the winner is whoever happens to be stronger? Or do I view the kings and kingdoms of the world as all characters in a story that God is writing? as he reigns over all. What, what do I view as my home? Is my home one of the kingdoms of this world? Is my home a, a nation in this world? If so, the stakes are really high when it comes to the success of my nation. If my home is a nation of this world, my peace will rise and fall with the ever-changing health of my nation. But what if my home is the kingdom of heaven? If so, I won't be shaken when the nations rage and the world reels and rocks. If my home is the kingdom of heaven, I can have peace in King Jesus no matter what the situation is and the nation I happen to find myself in. What do I view as the world's greatest need? What do I view as the solution to the world's problems? Is, is the world's greatest need political change? Is the world's greatest need economic change? Is the world's greatest need cultural change? If so, then victory is found in elections and laws and Victory is achieved through human power and influence. But what if the world's greatest need is actually the grace of God in Christ? If so, then victory and success 
are found when people bow the knee to the Lord Jesus. If the world's greatest need is the grace of God in Christ, then victory is found in the spread of the gospel to the nations and those who dwell on the earth. How do I view the world? As you ponder that question, heed this warning of Revelation 17. Don't be impressed by the world's fleeting power. Don't let this world blind you to reality. Don't let the world's seductive beauty captivate your heart more than Christ. Don't let the world's fleeting power draw you away from King Jesus. Keep your eyes open. Keep alert. Keep awake. But most of all, keep your eyes on Jesus. He is our bridegroom. He is Lord of Lords. He is King of Kings, and He is coming soon. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word to us. I thank You that You did not leave us to discern what's going on around us that you didn't leave us alone to discern it on our own but lord that you chose to reveal to us the forces of evil satan's schemes but also satan's sure demise lord i thank you that you have shown us christ's victory the truth of his gospel. Lord, I pray that we would see the world as it is, that we would see the world through your eyes, that we would see it as seductive and dangerous, that we would see it as fleeting and hostile to you. So, Lord, that, that we might find our identity rooted firmly in Christ and his kingdom. Lord, we love you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.